Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the wonderful gift of Christmas and the remembrance of what you've done in sending your son to this world. I pray that you encourage us this morning with your word. Open our hearts to hear what you would have to say to each one of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, good morning. My name is, is Andrew. Thank you for those of you who said good morning back. My name is Andrew, and I'm a pastor here at Christ Community. We are actually two, not counting today, two Sundays away from Christmas. So is anybody out there excited that Christmas is coming? Anybody? A, a few of you? Okay. A couple of you. Anybody, anybody not excited? Anybody a Scrooge out there? If you're a Scrooge, say bah humbug. Oh, there's some of you. Wow. Wow. Gutsy. I like that. Well, you know what? I am a Scrooge too. Bah humbug. Um, and I know, if, you, if you know me, that doesn't surprise you, but uh, I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute anyway. Um, Christmas is a funny time. It's a funny time of year. It is, as far as I can tell, the most bizarre, you know, cultural holiday that we all celebrate together uh, broadly. And here's what I mean by that. Um, suddenly in Christmas, we're, we're all wearing red and green together and it's okay. Um, if, you, if, you, if you try to do that in May, it doesn't, doesn't go off as well. Um, and suddenly, putting uh, electrified, candy-colored fire hazards all over your house is not only okay, it's encouraged. Um, only happens once a year. Suddenly, uh, you can't buy a cup of coffee without being reminded that it's Christmas because it's got snowflakes on it or something like that. And I'm, I was raised in Southern California, and we don't even know what a snowflake is, and it was on our coffee. Um, and suddenly, it's okay to play Christian music everywhere, 24-7, in any store. Uh, is there any other time of year you hear praise music to Jesus playing in Walmart? So, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. I mean, that's, that's praise music. It's not just Christmas music, and it's, it's kind of bizarre. Um, it's also, as far as I can tell, the most hopeful time of year for our culture, but perhaps not in the best way. And, and what I mean by that is uh, every Christmas movie that we love uh, maybe, with the exception maybe of Die Hard, um, this doesn't count, but <laughs> don't act like some of you don't like that movie. Um, it's, uh, the plot of all these movies is about how no matter how bad things get, no matter how hopeless we are, the Christmas season will save us. We need only wait on Christmas or anticipate Christmas or believe in it, and we will right the wrongs of this world. And we, and, and we wait on it, we do. We all do. Christian or not, we wait on Christmas. We buy calendars just for this month and give ourselves little pieces of candy to ease the pain as we get closer to December 25th. And when it finally comes that morning, the kids run down the stairs and, you know, puppy gets a new toy and the family eats a great meal and we want it to last forever. We really do. The beauty of the lights, the warmth of family nearby, the anticipation of great gifts we want it to last forever, but here's why I'm a Scrooge. It never does. It never does. No matter how hard we try, it never lasts. And that's why going back to work or going back to school, going back to normal life in January is so hard. Because you get back and the decorations are gone and the parties are over and it's like, wait, wasn't something supposed to be different? Wasn't this supposed to produce some kind of lasting change on life? 
a different kind of life, a life that isn't maybe so drab or so boring or so painful as the one I experience now. I'm not saying that loving Christmas and all the pageantry that goes with it is wrong. It's not. What I'm saying is it's not enough. It's not enough. So bah humbug. That's why I'm a Scrooge. Because we all of us find ourselves waiting again every year. We're waiting for something. Everybody's waiting for something. Waiting to be healthy. Waiting for that spouse that you want. Waiting for that job that you want. Waiting for that relationship to heal that's broken. Waiting to be free from that same ugly sin or addiction that you just can't seem to shake. Waiting for the the loss and the pain to finally go away of something that's happened in your life. We want to feel happy again. We want to feel whole again. And in a word, if I could summarize everything I've just said, we are all waiting for what the Bible calls redemption. The Bible calls redemption. It's the undoing of the brokenness of this world. That's what redemption is. The question is not whether or not you are waiting for this. You are. (laughs) If you've ever said of this world, it's not right or it's not fair, you have asked for God's redemption to come into your life. We all long for that. You've asked for God's redemption. We all have. We're waiting on it. The question is, will we wait forever? That's the question of our text this morning. So in Romans 8, you've heard it just read. You can turn there now if you want. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. Paul's resounding answer to that question, will we wait forever, is no. No. Even if it feels like it. Christmas, when we understand it properly, means we will not wait forever. Now, last week, Tom taught us that Christmas means slaves to sin become sons and daughters of God, heirs to his inheritance, his kingdom, and his name as adopted children. But heirs don't get everything right away, do they? No. They wait. And so do we. We wait. And in a broken world like our own, All such waiting comes with groaning, groaning. And as we explore Paul's thoughts here this morning, we need to address three questions. These are the three questions we're going to address this morning. Number one, who is groaning? Who is groaning? Number two, why do we groan? Why do we groan? And then number three, what will replace the groaning? Where are we going? Where are we headed? Those are our three questions. So first, who is groaning? And uh, Paul answers this question right in our passage today. I'm going to read it one more time. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. For I consider, says Paul, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us or to us, depending on your translation. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
And here in this, in this chapter is a basic teaching of Christianity on the brokenness of this world. Okay, we can't miss this. Everyone groans. Yes, every person groans. I think we all get that. What we see in this passage is that everything groans. Everything. Every rock, every tree, every animal, every mountain, every land, every sea, it all groans. Why is that? Why does that happen? Because God made everything in this world. Just read Genesis 1 and 2. Everything is God's idea and it's his handiwork. And when he made it, he made it perfect. He made it beautiful. He made it exquisite. And everything was in its right place. But when humanity sinned, When we said to God, we know better than you. When we kicked him out of his own world, it was not simply people who suffered for it. The whole creation was broken, and so it waits too. It groans with us. And we see this around us all the time if we know what to look for, do we not? Hints of nature's incredible beauty and shocking examples of its brokenness. The beautiful Indian Ocean, I've seen it myself, uh, it's the sustainer and provider for much of Indonesia, indispensable resource for them. In 2004, killed hundreds of thousands of people in an instant. It groans. It groans. Not the way it's supposed to be. You can think of other examples. Earthquakes, volcanoes, hurricanes, tornadoes, they are signs of a groaning world. And our bodies, too, groan, do they not? Our very bodies long for redemption. I mean, think of how a human cell, which is this perfect, incredible design, how, how it turns, becomes cancer, becomes a disease that kills us. And we grow old. We cannot help but grow old. Our bodies fail us. And I know I'm still a relatively young man, but it seems like every year my body groans at me a little bit more. A little less energy, a little longer recovery time. I was saying this, I was talking to Becca about this earlier, and I said, I even started, I worry about my back now. I mean, it's like, hi, Dad. You know, I worry about my back. <laughs> no one warned me this day was coming. Um, our bodies, I feel it now, they fail us. They do. They fail us. And this isn't even mentioning the emotional groaning that we all go through, the the pain we experience in our relationships, in loneliness, in loss, in grief, in disappointment, and in shame. None of it was a part of God's plan, was a part of his design. None of it. And yet we experience it every single day. And this leads to our second question. Why? Why do we groan? Why is this the case? Well, one reason is we groan because there is something tremendously wrong with our world. There is something tremendously wrong with our world. This groaning, this pain, is a reminder to a world that often lives as if it does not need God, that we do need him. Pain and suffering, groaning, is this universal human condition, right? I mean, it transcends culture. Everybody hurts. Everybody feels pain. Everyone hates it. But if pain actually belonged to this world, if pain were an inherent thing and what it simply it meant, what it means to be a human being is to experience pain, if that were the case, why would we call it pain? Why do we complain about it? Why does it feel so wrong, so out of place? 
Why is there such a thing as a tragedy, which only makes sense if somewhere deep down in every single one of us, we know it could be better. We know it should be better. Why is that? A fish does not know that it is wet. Water is all that it knows. And yet we swim in a world of groaning, and we know it. We feel it. We know it isn't right. C.S. Lewis is a, a Christian author from the 20th century, and he, he puts this point better than anyone I know. He says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. A world without pain, without death, without groaning. These things do not belong here, and our experience of them every day testifies to that fact. Do not belong here. And yet, we try so hard to convince ourselves that the world is okay, that life is okay. We, we, we try to get the perfect family. We try to be the best at our job. Uh, we uh, take the most expensive vacations. We party hard every Friday night. I mean, whatever it is that you do, we are trying to convince ourselves that our world is not broken. And yet the groaning of this world does not let us get away with that for very long, does it? Because all it takes, all it takes is that one doctor's visit, that one phone call at 2 a.m. to rock you back into reality that life is broken. Our world and our bodies are constantly screaming at us. This is not the way it is supposed to be. And I don't care who you are or what you believe. You are longing for the way it's supposed to be. Every one of us. We want God's perfect world. So we groan because there's something wrong with here. There's something wrong with here. And we groan because that something wrong, according to the Bible, is our sin. We groan because of our sin. Our sin makes us groan. And the consequences of our sin, our rebellion against our, our very creator, is this brokenness, it's this groaning. Everything falls apart in this life, and the rejection of God started that process. That is why nature rages, that is why our bodies fail, that is why tragedies happen. We groan, in a word, we groan because our sin is that bad. It is that bad. Every hurricane, every tornado, every disease, every deformity, every horror ought to cause us to say, my sin is that bad. Now, that is not to say that every uh, disaster, every bad thing happens as a direct result of someone's sin. That is not true. Sandy did not hit New York because New York is full of sinners. Not true. But know this. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, Sandy would never have hit New York. Every such tragedy is a result of our sin. Even the smallest white lie, even the most harmless sin we can imagine, would have corrupted this world. And that sounds harsh. But this is a basic teaching of Christianity, and it is a basic teaching of Jesus. Sin, more than just being an immoral act or thought, which is how we often think of sin, more than that is a rejection of God's design and a rejection of his presence in our world. Parents, you, you understand that when your child disobeys, especially when they've gotten older and they, and they understand what they're doing, 
The greatest hurt is not simply that they disobeyed a rule, but that they rejected you who put that rule in place, right? They rejected you. They didn't value you enough to listen, and that hurts. And that is sin. That is sin. And we all do that. When we pushed God out, when we pushed him out, death and decay and pain entered in. In our rejection of God, we planted the seeds in this world for Holocaust, for genocide, and for starvation. Death like that is the consequence of sin in every case. Sin leads to death. That's why they're always together in Scripture. Sin and death. And when we get that, if we can believe that, every natural disaster, every horrible news headline, and every tragedy reminds us how desperate we are. So why do we groan? We groan to be reminded that our sin is that bad and that without God's radical intervention, we would be completely hopeless. Completely hopeless. Now, if you've been here the last few weeks, you know this is exactly what God has done. He intervened. He intervened in our pain and our story. He sent his son, born in a manger, crucified, suffering the full weight of the sin that we committed. He died for it. And then he rose again from the dead, and he defeated it forever. And he's restoring all of us to God's original design, the way God intended us to be. Christmas means, if you've been here, we are not condemned by our sin. Christmas means we are children of God again, right? I mean, that's what we've been saying. And yet, if all of that is true, if everything I've just said is true, then why do we still groan? Why is life still so painful? Why is this world still so broken? If all of that is true, well, we groan because the world is broken. We groan because our sin is that bad. And finally, we groan because in God's wisdom, he has not totally fixed it yet. He has not totally fixed it yet. Paul, in the same chapter of Romans that we just read, can affirm, on the one hand, you have received the spirit of adoption by whom, of, as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You have received it. But on the other hand, In our passage that we read this morning, he says, We ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And doesn't that seem confusing when you hear them right after each other like that? I mean, how are all believers of Jesus, on the one hand, already sons and daughters of God, but on the other hand, waiting for that adoption to come true? What's going on? This is one of the most important things that we have to grasp as believers. We have to get this because by God's design, the redemption of the world, the undoing of the brokenness of this world happens in two stages. It begins with the birth of Christ. The process starts there, but it will not be complete until Jesus returns again. And theologians, you'll notice, we live between those, don't we? We live between those two times. And theologians will often refer to that dynamic of God's redemption as the already-not-yet tension of redemption. The already-not-yet tension of redemption. We are, in a very real sense, already saved. And the Bible uses that language. You're already saved, already sons and daughters of God, already free from groaning. But in another very real sense, we are waiting. We're waiting for the implications of that to work themselves out in our world. 
And the most famous analogy for this dynamic comes from the era of World War II. So D-Day, if you've heard of that, was a successful uh, invasion by the Allied forces of Normandy. And uh, just about every historian, in one, in one sense, the end of the war was, was Normandy, was D-Day. Because every historian will tell you uh, that by losing that beach that day, the Nazis lost the war, could not strategically recover from that. The war was all but over. And yet, the fighting in Europe was not over for another 11 months. For that year, the war was over, but the battles raged on. And some of the worst fighting in Europe happened in that time. That's the already not yet. Christians, we are living between the D-Day of Christ's victory on the cross and his ultimate victory when he returns again as a conquering king. We're living between those times. But when he does return, all creation will stop groaning. As Paul puts it in verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And then in verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the trees and the animals and the hills, what are they waiting for? They're waiting for us, the children of God, to lead them out. We led them into this mess because of our sin. And because of what Christ has done, we will lead them out into God's redemption. And this term that Paul uses, this eager longing, is uh, is used of racehorses who are uh, chomping at the bit, uh, barely holding back from running at full speed, the flick of the wrist of their rider. They're waiting. They can't wait. The universe, the stars, all of creation is waiting on the edge of its seat is holding its breath to follow us out of this mess. And this leads to our last question. What will replace the groaning? What will replace the groaning? We're all tired of waiting, creation included, but where are we going? What replaces it? What are we waiting for? And all of Scripture, every word of the Bible, anticipates the answer to this question. From Genesis to Revelation... From Adam to Jesus, from Christmas to Easter, everything God has ever done points to this question. And on this question, all of God's promises hang. How will you make right what sin has put so wrong in this world? How? And in a word, what replaces this groaning, according to Paul, what makes everything right again is glory. Glory. Now, glory is a funny word. We don't use it much today. But basically, in the Bible, what what the Bible means by glory, it is to see something or to see someone exactly as God intended them to be. Glory in the Bible is to see something or see someone exactly as God intended them to be. So when you put it that way, you realize that none of us Christians included, have ever seen God's glory completely. But note this. This is important. Paul does not say that God's response to our groaning is to create this glory out of nothing and so make the world right again. It is a glory that is revealed. He puts it in verse 18 this way. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. To be revealed. When, and I think of it this way. When you, when you go to a play, before the play starts, you sit and you're staring at a curtain, right? You can't see behind the curtain, but you know something is there. It's covered, it's veiled, but it's there. You know it. And at some point, when the actors are ready, and the stage managers are ready, the curtain goes up, and suddenly you are confronted by the reality of the show, the whole world that was hidden behind this curtain. It was always there, but you just couldn't see it. That is us right now. Behind the curtain, behind the groaning, just behind it, there is a glory, there is a beauty, there is a perfection to be revealed. It's already there. It's in you. It's in me. It's in the creation itself. And we catch glimpses of it, don't we? We catch glimpses of who this person or what that sunset or what that song is really supposed to be and it's perfection. And I point this out because we often think of heaven or glory as this immaterial existence in heaven. We're just floating around there. We think of this immaterial realm with God, but this is not what the Bible teaches about glory. The glory is right here. It is in our bodies. It is in the dust and dirt of the earth. It is in the skies above us. It is in the seas around us. It is hidden, but it is there. And the perfect world for us, the one that we're a place, this groaning one, is not one yet to be created, but one yet to be revealed. God's goal was never and will never be to get us into heaven. His goal was and always is to get heaven down to earth. This material realm where we are and to bring it to glory, its true glory. Dallas Willard, uh, when writing about this very subject, he says this. He says, a short while ago, the Hubble telescope gave us pictures of the Eagle Nebula showing clouds of gas and microscopic dust reaching six trillion miles from top to bottom. Hundreds of stars were emerging here and there in it, hotter and larger than our sun. As I looked at these pictures and through them at the past and ongoing development of the universe, I could not help but think of Jesus' words before he left his little band of disciples. He said, in my Father's house there are many rooms. I go to prepare one for you. This house that's being prepared is, this, is the glorified world. When we consider that the beauty already apparent in this world, already apparent in the stars, already apparent in nature, already apparent in the world around us, when we consider that that beauty is veiled, that it is but a shadow of its original glory and perfection, the thought is overwhelming. This will be our playground. This will be our home as the children of God. And we are not only spectators of that glory, according to this text, we are partakers in it. We will be glorified too. In fact, the creation, as Paul points out, waits for our transformation, not the other way around. The universe in all its vastness and beauty and power is not God's apex of creation. It's us. It's waiting for us. This includes our physical bodies, Bodies that no longer cause us pain and no longer decay, but get stronger and better over time. 
Here we define physical beauty in terms of pounds and measurements and muscles and makeup. So let me say this. The most beautiful model will not compare with the glory that is to be revealed in us at that time. It is going to be beauty of another kind. We've only tasted it here. And age will not touch these bodies. Here you reach your prime before you have the wisdom to even know what to do with it. Not so then. Not so. Then you will get stronger and smarter and wiser and you will feel younger and more energetic and more vibrant and beautiful every day. And don't be concerned that your body fails you now. There is glory hidden there too. And it will be revealed. And not just our bodies, but our souls are transformed. Every person we know, you can, you can think of, you can see in them so much potential for good. You can see so many beautiful qualities in them, but it's always hidden. It's always competing with sin and selfishness, right? We catch glimpses of this glory in special moments with one another, but one day, we will be the most wonderful people. Exactly as God designed us to be. More joyous, more funny, more intelligent than we can now imagine. We and the world will be gloriously beautiful inside and out. And this is why Paul can make such an audacious claim in verse 18. Listen to this. I consider the sufferings of this present age not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And when you think about that, Paul is saying, take all the groaning, take all the groaning caused by cancer and death and loneliness and child abuse. Take all of the pain caused by infertility and war and terrorism. Take all of the suffering caused by slavery and genocide, starvation, greed, pride, and selfishness. Take all of it that the world has ever experienced and put it in a massive pile of agony and shame. And he says of that, not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. How can he possibly say that? How can he possibly say that? Now first, Paul is not minimizing the suffering of the world at all. Jesus cared very deeply for the suffering of the world. He entered it. He experienced it. He endured more of it than any human person ever has or will. He wept at the death of his friends and he felt the full abandonment of God on the cross, which no human being has ever felt. But because he did that, and you have to hear this, because he did that, he transforms all suffering forevermore. He transforms all suffering forevermore. He transforms our suffering from the pangs of death the pain you feel before you die, he transforms our suffering from that to the pangs of childbirth. Here's how Paul puts it in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now listen, the biggest difference between the pangs of death and the pangs of birth is that one signals the end. One signals the end. One signals a joyous and glorious new beginning. Ladies, is there any pain worse than childbirth? 
Uh, I remember the pain and nausea I felt just standing there when Avery was born, and I, I didn't do anything. Um, it's unbelievable. Labor is incredibly painful. And that pain, for those of you who are expecting, I'm sorry, uh, it cannot be understated or minimized. <laughs> it cannot be overstated or minimized, but, but was it worth it? Was it worth it? As soon as she saw Avery, I knew for Becca the pain was instantly forgotten. Instantly. In a split second, that pain transformed into joy. Yes, it's worth it. Of course it's worth it. This is Paul's point. We groan. The earth groans. Like a pregnant woman in the throes of the very worst labor. And it hurts. And we suffer. And we wait. And we hate it. But when that new baby comes... When that new creation comes, when that glory is revealed, all we will know is joy, and it is not even worth comparing. Not even worth comparing. We will not wait for this forever, but even in the waiting, it is worth every minute. And for now, we wait, we do. But as as Paul concludes in this passage, we wait as those with hope. Not simply a wish or a dream, not a hope that is here for a season, pretty with lights, that goes back in the box for next year. This is a sure hope. It will happen. That no, this is a hope that no suffering can scar, that no death can touch. It's just behind the curtain. It is almost here. And Paul says, hold on to this hope. Hold on to it. Do not, do not let the world and the pain of this world convince you to abandon it. It will not fail you. This hope will not fail you. Christmas means we will not wait forever for this hope. God made sure of that. And because of what he has done and what he promises to do, we can say with great confidence as Christians, the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Father, we confess that so often we are distracted by the pains and heartaches of this world. But Father, we are so thankful for Christmas and the reminder that you are dealing with it, that you will defeat it, that you have defeated it. And that the world you created, the world you have in mind for us is just behind the curtain. It's almost here. I pray this hope over all of us that it would empower us to live lives of faith. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.